Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's wildest environmental news hour. Stefan, the naked ape hostetter. Uh, we are on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your beloved local community radio station. Lauren Latour is still out of the country. Yes. How dare she? She'll be back she next is week. A, she is a climate criminal. <laughs> We're talking entirely about the green belt today. Yes. Long overdue. Is it? Oh, I mean, Bill 23 has been the story of Ontario for at least the last few weeks. Quite a long time. We did cover it two weeks ago. Uh, from a rally before it was passed, but it was passed this Monday. And unfortunately, without many of the changes that environmental activists were pushing for. So, Wait, and, this is, and this is about opening up the green belt to development. Bill 23 does a series of bad things. It, it's going to end up, as you'll hear throughout this entire show, it's sort of an omnibus bill about making it easier to build really mostly sprawl housing, Reducing the amount of money that municipalities will get, again, encroaching on on wetlands and other things like that. Reducing the power of conservation authorities. It's just a... A slash and burn of environmental regulations. Yeah. We'll cut you off right there. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you right there. Not even going to let you finish. I'm going to finish for you, then I'm going to stop you. David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter. Yes. The four most beautiful words in the English language. <laughs> Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. Yes. Stefan will be interviewing two highly knowledgeable individuals yes. about this bill. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Sarah Buchanan. Yeah. Sarah Buchanan, the campaigns director at the Toronto Environmental Alliance, and Millie Roy from the Canadian Association for Physicians from the, for the Environment. And you're just talking with both of them separately about this bill in general. Yeah. So with Sarah, we talk uh, a bunch about the impacts it'll have on municipalities and the ability for local governments to meet their climate targets. And uh, with Millie, we talk more about the health impacts of the bill and the dangers and problems with sprawl, basically. And you're hearing the dulcet tones of a freshly married man. I guess that is true. Stefan Hostetter. Wow. Congratulations. Okay. Congratulations. We should also mention There's that- There's just so little hope in this world, and I just see a ray of beauty just mm. coursing from your eyes and dripping onto your lips. And as you speak, this cream of gorgeousness is just is morphing your words into magic. All right. Well, we should definitely mention that we are broadcasting from CIUT. I already said that. Did you mention the fact that we have wonderful radio partners? I did. Did you mention the fact that we're also on the Harbinger Media Network? I didn't. Okay. Harbinger Media Network. All three of those things. A community of progressive media creators all around the country. Harbinger Network. Okay. And we're still looking for that goal of hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> we just need we just need eighteen thousand dollars. <laughs> if we can get eighteen grand by the end of this by the end of this hour, it would really help us out. <laughs> All right, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm just gonna summarize what's happened with the green belt. Okay. All right. Mostly from reporting from Emma McIntosh, friend of the show. Yeah. Okay, so the green belt, the green belt. Now, this is Doug Ford. This is part of Doug Ford's uh, bill here, taking apart the green belt. So I thought you, you so you're not, you're not even talking, I guess, with these people about Doug Ford's corruption of, around the green belt. No. You? Okay. This is just a. So we're just we're just priming with the corruption. Okay. Yes. All right. So the green belt, 
is a stretch of protected land here in southwestern Ontario that includes nature preserves and farmland. It was created in 2005 <clears throat> in order to have a buffer to the massive urban sprawl of all the cities around our part of Lake Ontario. So it's a big area of protected green space surrounding the greater Toronto and Hamilton area that stretches from Niagara to Oshawa. Uh, without the green belt, there would be an even greater plague of greed-driven greed destruction of some of the best farmland in the country and some of the most biodiverse parts of Canada. Now, I read, actually, Stephen, that southern Ontario is the most biodiverse part of Canada. I've, I've heard it has the best soil. I had not heard it was the most biodiverse. That's, that's, what I, that's what I'd heard. You right. can look that up. Um, now, of course, a lot of the farmland only became available after settlers drained most of the water from what was once a massive wetland. That's how you get good farmland. Wow. All right. Anyway, so when Doug Ford was first elected as Premier, as premier of Ontario in 2018, which actually feels, feels, like, feels like he's been in power since 2008. It really does. Uh, he explicitly promised not to touch the green belt because a video surfaced online of him telling developers that he would open up a big chunk of it for housing uh, when he was running for leadership of the Ontario Conservatives, and that caused a huge stir. People were really upset about about that video of him saying he would open up the green belt, and he said, in fact, that he would not do that, promised not to do that, because people were upset. Now, developers and land speculators who have hundreds of millions of dollars to gain from opening the Greenbelt, have donated heavily to the Conservative Party. And since Ford's re-election this year, he has now flip-flopped on his position as an, and has announced that he will open up 7,400 acres of the Greenbelt to development. Some of these developers have even spent millions and millions of dollars for land in the Greenbelt since Ford's election, seemingly in the belief that it would be opened up. Some of these same developers, notably the DeGasparis family, have also benefited from Ford's use of zoning orders to override municipalities to fast-track development. Stefan spoke with Emma McIntosh about this earlier. Uh, it's also come to light that the, that the DeGasparis family recently borrowed $100 million from CIBC uh, at a 21% interest rate to buy land in the Greenbelt that is now being opened. So it's such a huge interest rate. People think, how could you have done this? How would you agree to this if you didn't know that this would that this would have, that this would be working out for you? Now the Green Party is now trying to start an ethics investigation into the Ford government following a joint report from the Narwhal and the Toronto Star about the fishiness of some of the purchases made of the Greenbelt by uh, made of Greenbelt land by donors to the Ford government. Ontario Housing Minister Steve Clark recently refused to answer whether the government had given advance notice to these developers about opening the Greenbelt. Ford's excuse has been that none of this matters because we're in a housing crisis and he needs to do everything he can to open undeveloped land for new housing. And I forgot to mention, they, they, they say that, that they're going to include even more land as part of the Greenbelt, right? But most of that land is already protected by other stuff. It isn't actually, it isn't, you can't actually develop it. Yeah. So first and foremost, I think that if you want to get a, the best handle you're going to get on this topic, I cannot recommend the reporting that the Narwhal has done. As Dave mentioned, a lot of this comes broken up. Emma McIntosh, uh, also friend of the show, Fatima Syed, also put together some pieces in relation to the, these stories. Some of the work here was actually a partnership between the Narwhal and the Star, but a lot of the other reporting sort of all came out of that work and the work that's being done by the Narwhal. So if you want to get a good handle on this, I highly recommend checking them out. But 
I think the key, like in the conversations you'll hear in, in a second, one of the things that really comes up again and again is just how many things are touched by this bill and honestly how many people are still left confused about the implications of this bill. You know, even just today, the Tr Ontario Farmland Trust came out and blasted the Ford government for, for this, in part because public consultation is still open. You can still have your voice heard about the bill until December 4th, and yet they've already passed the bill. In the conversation that you'll hear with Sarah Buchanan at one point, she talks about how little even the government seems to know about what they have changed in terms of some of the green building standards in the, in the city of Toronto. And and it's this kind of roughshod, push-your-way-through action that, A, is super far away from good governance, but B, really draws into question just how badly the Ford government didn't want to debate this bill. And the longer we get past it, obviously the more they're hoping the story goes away, because more and more these things like the you know developers who take huge loans to buy land, or even a couple days ago, how Stephen Clark who's one of the ministers responsible for this in the PC government, basically refused to answer whether or not they had told or tipped off developers that they might have that they might be opening this up. And yet, you know, here's a huge bunch of PC supporters, a huge bunch of people who've donated to the PC party, who have purchased land that when they purchased it, had should there should have been no indication that that month that the value of it would have gone up. And yet they did it here. And let's not forget that the same set of people or a very similar set of people also have land around the around the 413, the new highway the Ford government's building. And so if anyone is benefiting from all of these changes, it is unquestionably these developers. And who's not benefiting, despite the fact that, yes, we are in a housing crisis, but you're really not seeing any of the urbanists and any of the people who really focus on housing really touting these bills because the housing they're building is all single-family homes and all sprawling houses. Uh, and so you're, what you're really seeing is a, is a downloading of costs to service these houses that will sprawl out uh, outside of the planning and actually a disempowerment of these municipalities from even getting to have their own plans be heard. So these governments, the Ford government is basically allowing development that the municipalities themselves do not necessarily want, but then the municipalities have to spend the money to ensure that these new houses have water, electricity, and all these things. And so that's where you'll hear later a little bit about the excess costs that are going to come on to these municipalities, but also the reduction in profits or reduction in revenues because of the fact that they're actually charging the developers less money to build these houses. So, like, it can't be stressed enough how expensive this bill is going to be for municipalities and how difficult it will be for a lot of different types of progressive change and a lot of different things that are being caused by the, by this bill. And anyway, we'll see in a second in the interview with, with Sarah about just how difficult it's going to make municipalities. And then with Millie, we'll talk a bit about the health impacts. But the only thing that really someone who is looking at all of this can take away is that the winners in this are the developers who, who have donated to the PC government, and the losers are basically everybody else. Well, all right there, Stefan. 
We're going to let you handle all of that yourself. Oh, I didn't mention the grassy hands. Oh, yes. And before we go to music break, we do desire to mention that Grassy Narrow, the Grassy Narrows First Nation is doing an online event today. Directly after the show. 12 p.m.? Uh, noon, yes. If you're listening to this, 11 a.m., Friday, December 2nd, 12 noon, Grassy Narrows is having an online event commemorating 20 years since they first blockaded, what was it they actually blockaded? A road. A logging road. A logging road. And so this is part of, this is, it is land back. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's land back. Yeah, the the blockade is, uh, the, the event is to celebrate and to honor 20 years of reclamation, alliance, ceremony, and freedom. And it starts at noon, and you go to Grassy, actually, no, it's free Grassy, isn't it? It's freegrassy.net. Freegrassy.net. Now we're going to take a light hit of music and return with Stefan's interview with Sarah Buchanan. And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network, a great group of leftist media out there that we are stoked to be a part of. However you found us, though, thank you so much. As previewed earlier on the show, I'm here with Sarah Buchanan, the campaigns director at the Toronto Environmental Alliance, and we are chatting all about Bill 23, which depressingly got passed on Monday. So a part of this conversation isn't so much about how we can rally to stop it, but the implications it will have and maybe the work that can be done to limit its damage and in the future perhaps find a way to build up a strong enough argument to get rid of some of the worst parts of it, because as we'll find out in a second, there are lots of different bad parts of it. But anyways, thank you so much for being here, Sarah. Of course. Happy to be here. As a general introduction, can you tell us what the broad implications of Bill 23 will be? I can. And I should say that, you know, depending on who you ask with this bill, you may get a different answer on on what's the actual worst part of this bill, because there are so many worst parts of this bill. The title of the blog we wrote on it was There's Something for Everyone to Hate in Bill 23. So I'll walk through, you know, some of the really big attacks in Bill 23. The one that is occupying most of my time is the attacks on actually green development standards for buildings. This one I don't know if folks have heard as much about it, but what Bill 23 does is remove a lot of the ability for cities and municipalities in Ontario to say, hey, we have to make buildings greener and more energy efficient every, you know, every year, every few years, every cycle. Toronto is relying on that to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from buildings. It's a huge part of Toronto's ambitious climate plan. And with one fell swoop of a, a pin, this bill completely guts Toronto's green standards. So it essentially means Toronto can't put in place or implement its climate plan. There was already some barriers on the road uh, actually put in place by the provincial government because our grid is is getting increasingly more, more polluting and full of gas. So this is yet another reason Toronto uh, is being hampered by the province and, and 
unless something drastic changes, won't actually be able to hit its net zero commitments. So that's a huge one for, for our work at Toronto Environmental Alliance, because we've put so much time and effort into, you know, trying to get folks in, in, in and successfully getting folks in Toronto and many other people to speak up to say we need an ambitious climate plan. This removes a huge part of it. So other aspects to the bill, one is its massive budget impact to municipalities specifically. That's going to have knock-on impacts for everything that cities do, not just you know, environment and climate, things like housing, things like parks and services. All the things we rely on from cities are going to be severely impacted by the loss of the revenue from development charges. So this bill essentially tells developers, you don't have to pay as much as you used to. Uh, when you build a tall building in Toronto, you used to have to pay all this money to help support things like sewers and water pipes and parks to serve all those people. Maybe you don't have to pay so much for those things anymore. You know, taxpayers can pay for that. So it just takes money right out of the pockets of the, the actual residents of the city, puts that money right into the pockets of developers to the tune in Toronto of a few hundred million dollars every single year. That for a city that's already facing uh, an almost billion dollar budget shortfall this year, that is just absolutely a sledgehammer. So that's going to you know, impact things like whether Toronto can implement the parts of its climate plan that it like, you know, theoretically could do. There's going to be huge funding shortages for all of these things unless Toronto finds another source of funding, puts in revenue tools, raises taxes, all of things this city government has been really hesitant to do, uh, especially this mayor. So some really big impacts there. Other big impacts are to affordable housing. So changing the rules around how much landlords have to protect rental housing. This bill yanks away a lot of those rules and says, you know what, you don't have to replace demolished you know, rental housing for tenants anymore. That changes the equation for, for example, owners of you know, big rental buildings. Suddenly, it's more profitable for them to tear down that affordable housing put in place luxury condos. And so what are we going to see in the next few years? If, if you know, nothing happens to stop this bill, we're going to see a ton of affordable rental housing being torn down because it's now more profitable for developers to turn it into something else. So that is a really massive concern. And then one more thing, uh, two more things, actually, this is going to take a while. Two more things on the affordable housing piece. One of the ways the city builds more affordable housing, which it says it wants to do, is through those development charges. Now, you remember a minute ago I mentioned that Toronto's going to be losing a lot of those development charges. The development charges they're losing would have funded those affordable housing programs. So that means they're at a loss for funding at the moment, and the city has to either find new ways to fund those projects or ditch them, which we really don't want to happen. Another massive impact is to sensitive ecosystems and conservation authorities. So the bill takes away the power of conservation authorities, who are the smart people and scientists that we rely on to say, hey, developers who want to build on this floodplain or this wetland, actually, if you build here, that's going to pollute our drinking water. That's a pretty critical step in a development application. Suddenly, they're not going to do that anymore. This is a really big deal. This means that a lot of projects that which otherwise wouldn't have gone through are going to not have that oversight and, and will end up being built. So that'll have impacts in Toronto. That'll have impacts throughout many sensitive ecosystems in Ontario. It will have some impacts on the Greenbelt, although there's a, a separate proposal, which is 
you know, to remove tons and tons of land from the green belt, um, which folks are also quite upset about, understandably. So that's a, another big impact of, of Bill 23. I'm going to stop there for now. There's more about it that I could go on about. Yeah. And that definitely is a great indication of just how, A, huge this bill is. You know, it's one of the tactics we've seen more and more in recent years has been to like glom a bunch of really bad things together so that it becomes super hard to actually fight back because you get in this sort of thing. You ask what the problem with the bill is and it's a five minute explanation because there are so many problems with it. And then even, I want to go back to your first point because I think it's an example of how things can get really even messier, which is in that green building standards, there was a bit of reporting at one point that, oh, they're actually going to walk back that. That wasn't intentional. They're going to change some things. And then, and so people might have saw that headline, like, oh, maybe it's not as bad as it's going to be. But then what they actually change is not nearly enough to actually have the overall impacts, like back to how status quo is. But can you talk a little bit about that process? Well, I can, you know, keep it simple and say no one completely understands what they did actually do. Mostly they don't understand what they actually did, but they didn't do was save green development standards across the province for Toronto and many, many other municipalities who were asking for them to be saved. So there were a couple of amendments that were on the table that they voted, which would have actually writ large saved green development standards. Voted those down, put in their own amendments, which as far as folks can tell, maybe did something with green roofs that we think actually didn't need to be done and may have done something for bird-friendly windows. There may be other things in there that I'm not totally aware of, but from the the sort of experts that I've spoken to, they're still sifting through what happened and why. It just seems to be kind of a random shot in the dark to try to look like they're doing something while not doing anything at all. It did, as you mentioned, really muddy the waters. We had to do a lot of damage control with other organizations who understand this far better than I do to go out and educate some of the folks who, for example, were not going to even put into Toronto's request to the province that green development standards be saved because they thought it was they had already been saved, right? So that kind of misinformation goes out there and really influences how next steps happen. And it was it was quite damaging. But from what we gather right now, um, Toronto's green standard is is under dire threat, and we don't totally know how that's going to be salvaged or if it's going to be salvaged or what workarounds exist. Right. And and basically it would require something from the province again, right? Like it's not like the city could reinstate something because what the province has basically done has been has removed the ability for the city to have these standards. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, cities are, municipalities in Ontario are a creature of the province, right? So all of the city of Toronto's authority to do anything including exist as a city, is derived from the province allowing them to do so. If the province wanted to just dissolve Toronto, they could. The city solicitor at the latest council meeting confirmed that. That's a depressing thought. But you're right. So a lot of these green development standards are kind of linked to areas the province has given the city authority to have. There may be other areas that the city could build a new set of standards around. If it is true that this was an unintentional sort of byproduct of them wanting to, quote, remove red tape. There may be some willingness on the part of the province to allow Toronto and other municipalities to 
you know, base legal authority for new green standards in new areas. Again, I'm not somebody who knows what that legal authority could be, but there, there may be ways. It's possible. It's not over yet. I'd love to move to the, the second piece you mentioned, because I think that probably has the biggest impact on the work that you do specifically, which is around the sort of gutting of yet another revenue tool for the city. Because for folks who are in and around working on climate change in the city, one of the number one asks we've asked again and again and again is more revenue tools to be able to fund climate action. And mm-hmm. that sort of has become like the call because everything else falls from that. If we don't have enough money, we can't do the work. And so you need that money. And so obviously we're pulling another $200 million per year out of the budget does not help this. Is that the biggest impact on your work? How do we see us working around it? And is the call just, well, now let's go back to, you know, the council and be like, okay, well, now you have to make up that money plus more money. Yeah, it's it's huge. Like I can't understate the impact on our work. You can't do anything with with no budget in the city of Toronto. The city of Toronto can can legally can't run a non-balanced budget, basically. Like they have to put forward a budget that is balanced. And we also don't have access to income taxes. Property taxes are really it. So Toronto does have, you know, the biggest revenue tool that cities have is property taxes in Ontario. But what's happened is because the mayor has been unwilling to raise property tax beyond inflation or even add inflation, it slowly eroded the budgets for for Toronto over the years. A lot of folks, you know, talked about that showing, you know, this this election, seeing garbage bins overflowing, seeing, you know, streets in disrepair. It shouldn't be shocking that when you just chip away at that budget over years and years and years that, that this happens. So there's been that happening. And now we have this huge sledgehammer of, there was a sledgehammer of the pandemic, which left Toronto in desperate need for more funds, you know, which Tory has gone out and said, please, we have almost a billion dollars we need to ba- to make up. We need some help. And at, at the same time, now we have, we have this. So the impact on the budget is just that, you know, groups like, like T going in to the budget cycle and saying, hey, we'd love to see this climate plan that you all voted for and committed to doing. We just want to see it move ahead. We just want to see you take the steps you said you were going to take. But every year you have to ask for that to happen in the budget and it has to go in the budget. And usually it doesn't. So it makes it so much harder to go in there this year and say, hey guys, like we know that you're short like over a billion probably, but like, can you maybe just do what you said you were going to do on climate change? Thank you. That's why we generally go in there and we say, here's a revenue tool to make this work. You don't have the money to do this. We know it. You know it. To make this happen, please put in a parking levy or a stormwater tax or something that actually, you know, discourages some of the polluting activities that, that we know we need to step away from and also brings in revenue to fund climate action. Something like charging a little bit extra for those downtown parking spots in paved areas in prime, you know, real estate in downtown Toronto, charging a little bit extra for people to park their cars who choose to drive into the city and park and having that go to, for example, a world-class transit system, that makes a lot of sense. So that's something that is an example of how we go into a budget process. And as it as it turns out, a parking levy could bring in hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Hmm, maybe about the same amount as Bill 23 takes away from Toronto. 
that's the kind of thinking I think that we have to get to. I was reading a spacing article sort of about the need to diversify our incomes and the ways that we had seen that in the past, you know, with the whether or not it was a vehicle registration tax and other things like that, that began to find more and more ways to get income in versus just sort of relying on, you know, the really big ones like property taxes, as you mentioned. But I and I do think that some of these ideas of discouraging some of the stuff we don't want while also making money seems to be a really Really good sweet spot if as long as it can be done as as, as well as possible. So, I mean, m- maybe the answer is, to this question is you would just get rid of it altogether. However, if you had the power to amend this bill, what changes would you make? Oh, I would just throw the whole thing in the garbage. I don't <laughs> think there's there's just so many aspects of it that are total that belong in the garbage that I I just can't see any way to salvage it, and it's so hard to pit you know, one message against another. Like, it's hard to say, oh, it's more important that we, you know, reduce emissions from buildings than protect tenants. Like, no, that's that's not a decision we should be in the position of making. We need to do both. We need to protect tenants. We need to build affordable housing. We need conservation authorities. We need a climate plan. And we need a city budget so that, you know, basic things can be done in Toronto. We need all of those things. And the fact that the province is is stepping in instead of just getting out of the way and, and letting Toronto do what it needs to do is increasingly frustrating. And it's not just Bill 23. You know, we're seeing just massive overstepping into the city of Toronto's business and other cities' business as well, like Ottawa. We're seeing the strong mayor legislation coming in, which just it is mind-boggling. Like, you know, just picture the emoji of like a brain going up and exploding. And that was my head when I heard both parts of, of, of this strong mayor legislation. You just can't walk in and tell a mayor that they can pass, uh, you know, just about anything in Toronto with only one third of the elected people. Like it, It's just like, why do we have a council? And, you know, there was a joke motion at council to, to ask the province why we even need a planning department in Toronto. And sadly, you know, they might want to move another one that says, why do we even need a council now? Because it's it's incredibly frustrating. So all these things are adding up to, you know, a really undemocratic system that is putting so much more power in the hands of, of, of two people, really two groups, one, the provincial government and two developers. So it's, it's a bit terrifying when you think about how that power is being centralized, how that money is being centralized and who's losing out on that as well. I mean, I think that there's also kind of a moment happening where people are waking up a little bit. People are realizing that all these attacks are forming kind of a tornado of of anger that's being spun back at the province. And people are realizing that, you know, taken all together, these are are really going to have a fundamental destructive impact on on so many aspects of our city. You know, and I, I've done a lot of work on Toronto's climate plan. You've done a lot of work on Toronto's climate plan, Stefan. Tons of folks have advocated and asked for this to have it be, you know, partially destroyed and crumbled with one, one bill. And, and, you know, so many folks work on inclusionary zoning, for example, just bam, gone. It's a devastating moment, but it's one that people are waking up because of. I would not be surprised if this kicked off a, a movement to actually give Toronto and give cities some reality of their own. You know, like to me, that's one of the things that should come out of this is the ability for cities to not be so beholden to a province or at least have some capacity to fight back, right? Like it truly does not make sense that 
you have the the city in such a weak position. Toronto will never be able to decide who the mayor is or who the premier is by themselves. And yet the premier by themselves can just do whatever they like to these cities. And that's such a power imbalance that like when you see the province and the feds, there's like a, that's more of a give and take. The province is actually probably more powerful than the feds are in so many ways. Whereas this is just like, no, I feel like I'm doing this and my constituents don't live in the area, so I don't care. And that's only going to eventually breed, you know, resentment and, and hopefully some actual engagement. But as you mentioned, the bill is passed. And so the strategy must change and the response yeah. is must change. So what is happening now and how would you like to see people engaging in this fight as it continues? So there is, you know, there is still a call. Call has shifted for a lot of folks from don't pass this bill to repeal this bill. The province does have the power to just walk it back. And I think it's worth, if, if you haven't spoken up on this, particularly if you live in a riding with a conservative MPP, to say, please walk this back. I don't think it's received royal assent yet. So yeah, that that's one step. But realistically, I, I don't think that's going to happen in the near future. It's always worth using your voice and speaking up, though, and showing where this is going to cost them politically. So tons of folks have spoken up. Uh, we saw them take a little bit longer than expected and introduce some amendments. You know, they were shaken a little bit by the the massive response to this bill, and they they still will be. So I would say that you know every time we do this, every time we speak up, we get a little bit louder, we get a little bit stronger, and we are more and more ready for the next time. I mean, the real test is going to be at, at the next election. So sadly, with a lot of these provincial bills, we you know the win is not necessarily them repealing or not passing the bill because that often it is just what happens because that's the political reality the win is them not being reelected. the win is them people waking up and seeing that they don't want this kind of destructive action and that this is not who they want in power and that they can actually go out and, and vote them out that makes would i like sense. to see them repeal the bill absolutely i'd love to see them repeal the <laughs> bill that would be great but yeah, the, the game plan, you know, on my books is, is slow and steady. We've got to keep fighting. We've got to keep edging. Let people forget about this when that next election rolls around. That is our job, is to help people remember what happened. Because they didn't last time. We're living through the implications of having such low voter turnout and such a complete unfortunate failure in that case. So very last question, how can folks stay informed and involved and get connected to you and your work? Yeah. So, you know, they can go to torontoenvironment.org and that's where all the good stuff is for T's work. Sign up for our email list. You can donate. You know, we definitely want to keep up the fight and, and put our heads together also on finding more solutions to replace some of the stuff that's been destroyed. So please do follow our social media, et cetera, et cetera, and connect with folks taking action in your local community. Find a way to speak up together. It's a whole it's a whole lot more powerful. One way to do that is speaking up through tea. We have lots of actions. So you can join into a community of thousands and thousands of people who are using their voices to say no to this kind of destructive legislation. But you can also do that in lots of other ways. Thank you so much, Sarah Buchanan, the campaigns director at the Toronto Environmental Alliance. We'll go to a quick music break and then we'll be back with Millie from the Canadian Association of Physicians and Environment to talk about the health impacts of this bill. See you real soon. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. 
And we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. And I'll take myself another opportunity and uh, remind everyone that we are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Or perhaps you're listening on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country. Or maybe you found us on the podcast. We found anywhere podcasts can be found, including now with the Harbinger Media Network. So excited to be part of that. So if you're just tuning in, this show has been a all Bill 23 all the time show. And... To wrap this up, as previewed earlier, we are joined by Millie Roy, the chair of the Ontario Regional Committee for the Canadian Association for Physicians for the Environment. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much. You could ask about 10 different people what their concerns are about this bill, and you get 10 different answers because it comes from so many different ways. It comes at you in so many different ways. And so from your perspective, from where you are, what are your biggest personal concerns about Bill 23? Sure. I mean, basically, it's an omnibus bill with omnibus concerns. I think we, you know, this Bill 23 has the potential to be deeply damaging on on so many different levels and so many different fronts, and that these harms would begin immediately and then be locked in for generations to come. And I think that for myself, I could put it in a few buckets. There are the environmental harms. There are the harms to worsening the housing and affordability crisis. There are the health harms, of course, from my perspective as a physician, harms to municipalities and taxpayers, and harms and erosion of our democracy. And I could talk about each one a little bit, you know, in in more detail. Um, When it comes to the environmental harms, by promoting suburban sprawl, and consuming precious natural uh, green space. We contaminate our wetlands. We destroy the natural carbon sinks that are are present in in the green belt by literally bulldozing them over. We would increase flood risks with poorly conceived planning in environmental sensitive areas while dismantling the protective functions of the conservation authorities. And these, of course, were, were created in, in large part to protect Ontarians from flood risks. So perhaps, you know, our government policymakers, you know, might want to revisit the history of Hurricane Hazel and why these authorities came to be in the first place. And, fo- and also, of course, opening up the green belt, you know, to small parcels at the moment, where does that destruction stop? We'd already heard promises from this government not to touch the green belt very publicly in 2018. And at this point, I think the public trust is is broken and we don't really know where it would stop. If we move on then to concerns over, you know, housing and affordability, Bill 23, although it's being touted as a housing bill, is is really the opposite uh, of a solution. Affordable housing in particular stands to be gutted by this bill by a number of mechanisms. So first of all, 
a rental replacement legislation, which currently exists, which means that if an older building with rental tenants is being redone or redeveloped, once it's done, those same original tenants must be allowed or offered to move back in at a protected, their rich rental cost. And this protection will be removed. Furthermore, in new developments, the minimum requirements for um, the proportion of affordable housing mix will be reduced by Bill 23. And even furthermore, any housing which is currently designated as affordable under Bill 23, the protected price will be lost at an earlier point of time so that the housing units can revert to real market value and become unaffordable much faster. And then also the the concept of depending on sprawl housing and sprawl communities really means producing a smaller number of larger and less affordable housing units compared with developing sustainably in, in sort of urban areas. Then if we move on to concerns regarding, you know, harm to municipalities and taxpayers, and, and there's a whole host of those. We know, of course, that the proposed reductions in development fees means more money in the pockets of developers at the expense of municipalities who depend on, on that revenue stream. And this means that municipalities are left scrambling, either, you know, making drastic cuts in public services or massive tax hikes to cover those missing revenues. And all the while increasing profit margins for developers. And of course, none of this is in, is in the best interest of, of the average Ontarian. The flood risks that may occur with, you know, poorly conceived building in wetlands and, and in protected land may create a crisis of insurability for homeowners. Some insurers, you know, in, in the industry, you know, are already starting to question whether they, whether blanket insurance is something that can be indefinitely offered to homeowners. So, you know, we need to consider those risks. And then, of course, is the fact that promoting sprawl development in itself costs the public more than double of sort of planned, sustainable urban densification. So the new roads, infrastructure, utility hookups, you know, these just don't pay for themselves as readily with, with this type of development. Yeah. And then finally, if we move on to sort of concerns over democracy, by, you know, that are in, inherent in Bill 23, conservation authorities are having their authority you know, gutted or, or weakened. Municipalities, expert and citizen input, all of these are either being weakened or suppressed you know, by design. Um, municipalities, which voted against boundary expansions, over the past year in, in a process that's been ongoing throughout Ontario with, you know, due and in many places, you know, really painstaking democratic process with excellent sustainable plans that have been worked out and ready to implement are being non-democratically overturned by, by Bill 23. And these expert solutions are just being ignored and shelved. The timing of introduction of the bill itself is very questionable. Uh, with so much potential damage to municipalities, this bill was literally introduced the day after the municipal elections. The readings and the vote to pass the bill have been inexplicably rushed. And this is all while newly elected councils are, you know, are, have barely had time to get self-organized, let alone become functional. And um, the timelines and timing have really stifled proper consultation and, and input. And many legitimate voices and organizations, for, for example, 
were shut out of the standing committee oral presentations by a very non-transparent selection process that allowed only a, a fraction of, of registrants to actually speak and be heard. So those would be sort of the concerns, and I've left out the health concerns, uh, which of course is, is another sort of topic unto itself. Right, for sure. And I, I, I want to get there in half a second, but before I do, I would love to talk a little more, a bit more about sprawl, because I don't think it's particularly obvious for people just how damaging sprawl is until you start sort of digging into all of the different problems it creates. You know, because it's not just about the fact that growing city boundaries take more infrastructure and, and cause a financial burden on these on these places, but also, as you've mentioned, often sprawl is is actually entering into ecologically sensitive areas and damaging our wetlands and other protections that we currently get from nature. But also it's creating super un, the un, most unhealthy version of our ability to live, mainly very car dependent, you know, experiences that are super not walkable, not connected to each other. Like no urban planner is out there saying sprawl is the right answer. Like no one who studies this is coming out saying, no, actually the never ending suburbs is the best way of living. And study after study after study seems to show this. And yet what we're seeing with this bill is a locking in in some significant sprawl and which locks us into carbon emissions too, because carb, you know, because sprawl is one of the most heavily carbon intensive ways of, of living. Like I remember I were hearing a couple of years ago, someone referring to Toronto's sprawl as our tar sands because of the emissions that are caused by this. And this is like if Alberta came around right now and said, we're going to invest in another, you know, three or four drilling sites in the in the oil sands, people would be up in arms about the, the expenses and, and the fact that this is not a sustainable way of living. And yet we live in this world where sprawl, for some reason, again, doesn't get that same piece in the brain. So could you talk a little more about the impacts of sprawl, both from a health, but also an environment perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And and I would start by saying that I absolutely agree, you know, with everything that that you just described. So if if we try to break it down a little bit, we can we can look at where, for instance, our our leading sources of carbon emissions in Ontario come from transportation and our built infrastructure. And those are exactly the two things that are amplified by sprawl. So in a sprawl community, we first of all need increased road infrastructure. As you mentioned, they're car-dependent communities. We don't have the options of passive transport, which is walking and cycling. We don't have good options for, for developing public transit infrastructure because that requires certain minimum population densities that are not met with sprawl housing. So we, we build road infrastructure. We know that when we build more roads, these studies have been done. It increases traffic, increases car use, and we have there a prime source of burning fossil fuels, which contributes both air pollution and carbon emissions to fuel the climate crisis. And we'll talk about the health impacts of that in, in a moment. Um, on the other hand, what you build are large, isolated homes, typically freestanding. And each of these homes requires more energy, again, typically natural gas, which is a polluting fuel, to heat these homes. 
we don't have the benefit of multiple unit dwellings. You know, if you've got a multi-story building, the amount of heat required in, in each unit is, is much lower. We also lose the option for innovative, you know, technologies of the future or what we should be implementing in the future, such as district energy systems where buildings that are close together can benefit and share energy. We, none of those solutions are possible if our underlying infrastructure is built as a sprawl community. So on the, you know, on, on the energy use side, it's a disaster that promotes air pollution and fuels the climate crisis. On the environmental side, of course, it stands to reason when you have larger, more isolated homes, we are consuming more land to house fewer people and fewer and wealthier people. And the result of that, of course, with land being a very finite resource, and this is a heavily populated part of the country, which also happens to be a very fertile part of the country, we are consuming our green spaces, our wetlands and blue, spa blue uh, spaces, and also precious farmland, so that there's repercussions on agriculture and food security as well. Because, you know, you are part of the Canadian Association for Physicians for the Environment, one of your focus is about the health impacts and as health practitioners. What does CAPE see as the big problems and the, and the big health impacts that will come from Bill 23? Exactly. And, and there's a lot of them. And we really want the public to see this and, and connect the dots. I think in, you know, there, there, thankfully, there's a lot of conversation ongoing around Bill 23, but we're still not hearing a lot about the understanding around health. So first and foremost is the fact that, you know, as, as we already alluded to, that this bill by design is going to escalate both the climate crisis and air pollution by promoting sprawl, promoting car dependent communities, promoting larger homes that require more energy, you know, to, to function. And at the same time, by disabling potential solutions such as public transit, district energy systems, and so on. Um, so the climate crisis, if we look at each of these climate crisis versus air pollution, the climate crisis is simply the single largest health crisis of our time, full stop. So that in and of itself, you know, I can delve if, if we have time, I can talk about, you know, what are the mechanisms by which uh, health is impacted, but there simply is no larger crisis that we are facing. When it comes to air pollution, it already prematurely kills nearly 7,000 Ontarians every year. And those are 2016 figures and rising. And air pollution already has been calculated to take almost $50 billion out of Ontario's economy every year. Now, collectively, if we, if we do want to delve a little bit into how the climate crisis, our climate change and, and air pollution are responsible for human disease and, and death. This ranges from things such as diabetes, obesity, heart and lung diseases, also neurologic diseases such as dementia and Parkinson's, multiple types of cancers, birth defects, infectious diseases, and much more. And in fact, there's, there's very interesting research even showing that Simply having access to nature actually uh, has been proven to improve our heart function, uh, things like blood pressure, anxiety and stress. It reduces obesity. Certainly, it, it improves mental health. And it's actually been shown it's correlated with better birth weight babies 
and longer lifespans in seniors. So there's so many, you know, sort of human health impacts that we really need to be aware of. And to start to view undeveloped land, not just as, you know, a monetary asset that is waiting for the highest bidder or something that's scenic indulgence that we really can't afford with a growing population. We need to understand that these are actually critically important to human health and, and our long-term survival. And furthermore, we talked about how the, the consumption of farmland would affect food security. And food security is another key determinant of health. So we're at a time now where Ontario is experiencing, for instance, record food bank usage. And in the face of that, Bill 23 would further impair food security, both by consuming and destroying farmland for sprawl, and also by fueling the climate crisis, which actually has been shown to reduce the yield, crop yields that we can deliver from any available land. If you could amend the bill, what would you do? My first quick response would be repeal it. We, we don't see the point of this bill in the first place at least not to serve, you know, the, the average Ontarian. But if the, the question was, well, you can't repeal it, but can you pick out, you know, certain points that, that you would really want to see change? You know, if we really had to pick and choose, we would say, for instance, don't decouple regional planning from local planning. Make sure that there's a coordinated plan and follow the advice of the of professional planners who are delivering us, you know, plans for proper sustainable urban development, which includes plans for proper densification of population, then allowing for public transit, active transport infrastructure, and all of these built-in methods of mitigating climate change and air pollution so that we are really working towards, you know, all of these combined solutions that we know we need, you know, urgently and, and at a large scale. I would want to restore the conservation authorities and public consultation processes that are being undermined by the bill. We would want to reverse all of the attacks on affordable housing that we already you know, discussed. And of course, taking the advice of urban planners would mean not engaging in sprawl housing, which would mean no need to build out of the, the green belt. We know that municipalities have already told us, in fact, that the government's own task force has told us that enough more than adequate land already exists within urban boundaries to meet the housing needs and population growth that, that is anticipated. So we are really at a loss to understand why those lands are not being earmarked for development as they should be. And then finally, I would also suggest that the actual process by which this bill has been rushed through readings and pushed through vote would also you know, need to be to slow down, extend maybe um, a further consultation period to, to look at amendments. As we sort of mentioned already, this bill has already been passed. And so that obviously changes the strategy of fighting against it. But how are you seeing this strategy change and how would you like to see people continue to engage in this fight? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what we're working at at a breathless pace, you know, as we speak. So first of all, I think we can commend people who are already involved in the political process. So MPPs who have already involved sort of higher authorities and third party bodies, such as the integrity commissioner and the auditor general. So going through those formal mechanisms, you know, hopefully is, is going to be impactful. On the public side, 
you know, we're looking to massively ramp up pub- public awareness. So we're, you know, we're happy for, for opportunities like this, you know, hoping that, th- that we build awareness and in doing so build up public opposition and solidarity from all the various stakeholders who stand to lose out with all the issues that are, are proposed in this bill. And that, you know, in terms of public engagement, that could look like public rallies, pressuring, you know, con- persistent pressure on MPPs in the way of phone calls, letters, meetings. It can also look like formal submissions while we still have a window to the Environmental Registry of of Ontario. That's something that any member of the public can do with deadlines set for December 4th and December 9th that, that you can find online. And of course, promoting the public to, to sign petitions and action letters, spread the word on social media, you know, write and read op-eds and so on. So then finally, just for folks, if they want to stay involved with CAPE specifically, uh, how can they stay informed about your work and what's going on? Right. Well, there's certainly a few key partners. So first of all, what I should say is that not only am I sort of the Ontario chair of CAPE, but at CAPE, we have actually partnered, and in fact, we're in, involved in, in sort of uh, chairing as well, a larger coalition of groups that is called the Ontario Climate Emergency Campaign. So I am one of the three co-chairs of that coalition. And that is actually a coalition of nearly 250 groups from across Ontario, very diverse, multi-sector. So we include environmental groups, health groups such as CAPE, seniors, youth artists, educators, um, business, so from all different walks of life. And the collective um, number of Ontarians represented by these 250 plus groups is over uh, 850,000 Ontarians. So anyone can join. You can join as a group. You can join as an individual. The website is ontarioclimateemergency.ca. And CAPE does a lot of its work on environment on this sort of portfolio through the OCEC. Environmental Defense is another great organization that's been doing great work with organizing and mobilizing people. So you can check out their website and their campaign, which is called Hands Off the Greenbelt. You can also look at an excellent dedicated website called Against Bill 23, and it's got all sorts of resources and calls to action. And finally, the Canadian Environmental Law Association has been doing great work around Bill 23 and is, is worth keeping tabs on. This has been Millie Roy, the chair of the Ontario Regional Committee for the Canadian Association for Physicians for the Environment. Thank you so much for your time and uh, keep fighting the good fight.